You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Mathematica, and Wolfram Alpha. Coming up, the final installment in a four-part series exploring the history of science dating back to ancient Babylon, recorded live at the Wolfram Summer School at Bentley University. In this final episode, Stephen takes questions from students at the summer school about cybernetics, the simulation hypothesis, and the potential pitfalls of scientific reductionism. Let's have a listen. The question is about reductionism and uh, uh, why does reductionism work, when does it work, etc., etc., etc. So I think, you know, the interaction of humans with science is complicated. That is, you know, it is not obvious that science could work at all. It's not obvious that there should be any order in the universe. I mean, it was a big fact, much talked about by theologians like Augustine and so on, and, and um, uh, that there is order in the universe. The universe might not be ordered. They used the fact that there is order in the universe as evidence for the existence of God. Not a, not a crazy inference that there's something, some sort of bigger organizing force in the universe because there is, after all, order in the universe. And it's that order in the universe that makes possible the idea of science. Otherwise, we just couldn't make any statements about things. Now, the question is, how far can you go? To what extent can you actually have a theory of things? And to what extent can you have, um, uh, you know, to what extent are the things we see things about which there can be a theory? So, for example, history, human history. We might say there cannot be a theory of human history. It's all, you know, where we are today is the result of a sequence of accidents of history. I know if that's even correct. You know, in biology, we see the same kind of thing. You know, Darwinism is kind of the, the you know, the, the Darwinian theory is a theory of historical accidents. We are the way we are because certain things won at different times in history and it could have been different. Um, in technology, we see the same kind of thing. You could say the same kind of thing, that the where we are today is the result of a series of historical accidents, much like natural selection. I happen to think that sort of there's a lot one can say about Darwinian kinds of things that is about biology, about what forms we see in biology that goes beyond this sort of series of historical accidents. In fact, you know, I think the, um, uh, that there are particular forms in biology, I think is something we can derive theoretically in many cases, and there's sort of a spectrum of forms that are possible, and often biology realizes most of those forms. Like one of the, the things is, you know, I don't know this particular one, but the kind of who expected the stegosaurus type thing. Was the stegosaurus a historical accident? Or looked at in the right way as the stegosaurus right on the way from this to that, so to speak? And, um, you know, in a sense, the, um, uh, so I think I don't know whether there's a theory of human history. There are probably some aspects of human history. You know, if you look at, as we can now do, you know, we've got all the historical country borders and you can watch the kind of the, um, the fate of empires, much like the Babylonians were trying to predict. You can watch the fate of empires come and go, so to speak. And if you watch this thing, it looks for all the world like some kind of physical process of, you know, things getting bigger and bubbles bursting and so on. And it's like, this is, this is human history, so to speak. And it seems, you know, maybe there isn't enough human history to be able to deduce a theory at this point, but it's still, it feels like the kind of thing about which there might be a theory. Now, the question of why, why is the world predictable at all or, or not? I mean, at times in history, people have thought the world wasn't very predictable. I mean, it was just like fate governs everything was kind of a, a belief in a lot of human history. And now we have the view that we can influence everything. Um, and, uh, you know, fate is a kind of a, a, a recognition that, that we can't predict stuff. Now, I think, you know, what happens is 
science and our brains are capable of making certain kinds of predictions. And we choose to notice those aspects of the world about which, uh, with which we can engage and about which we can make good predictions and so on. And so when we do engineering, we tend to concentrate our engineering around structures and systems where we can predict what they're going to do. Um, and I think that what's complicated is that there is both the world out there that does what it does, and there's the parts of the world we choose to engage with. And worse than that, in a sense, in terms of understanding what's going on, we build a lot of the world that we actually interact with. So you know, we're in a building with you know, tables and chairs and so on. And those are things that we've built. And we've built them to be things about which we can make conclusions using the, our brains and the scientific methods that we have. So in a sense, it's a, you know, if we're just throwing out into the, into the wilds of the universe, so to speak, uh, we actually will be in much worse shape than we are in our built environment of you know, the world as it is. And we've you know, we built this environment to be uh, an environment about which we can make conclusions and, and in which we can operate um, in a way so that our scientific and, and uh, cognitive methods actually work. Um, and I think that's the, um, so, so in a sense, the reason you know, when we explore the arbitrary computational universe, we find computational irreducibility all over the place. But we as humans tend to live in this bubble of stuff that we've built for ourselves, which doesn't have those characteristics for the most part. When we look at nature, it doesn't, isn't under those constraints. Presumably physics is no, under no constraint of being understandable. Biology is a little bit different because biology, insofar as it is governed by natural selection, natural selection has the feature, you can't make too big a move or you die. Um, and so it's kind of like doing calculus all the time. It's like doing gradient descent to try and figure out what, what organism it's going to end up with. It can't make big moves and sort of search out into the arbitrary computational universe. It's more, um, more operating within, uh, within this small uh, uh, domain. So I, I mean, I think that's the reason that um, uh, now, you know, will we be able to figure out a fundamental theory of physics? Probably. I mean, will we be able to deduce everything about the universe from that fundamental theory of physics? Probably not. In other words, um, you know, that will we be able to drill down to the bottom and get to a theory that we can hold in our hand and say, this is our whole universe? I think so. I don't know for sure. We won't know until we've done it. It will be pretty obvious if we succeeded. Because by the time we have a very simple theory, the thing is either right or completely wrong. Because we don't get to just have one little tweak. If we make one little tweak, we'll end up with 111.7 dimensions of space time and you know, things like this. We won't, it won't be just like, oh well, you know, the mass of the muon changed slightly. It will be a big, big change. Um, and so I think the, um, the thing that, um, uh, the thing that um, uh, happens, so you know, will we be able to get to the bottom of, of, of all of physics and so on? Um, the, uh, uh, you know, I happen to think probably yes. You know, we can't know until we've done it. Then will we be able to go back from the bottom of physics to everything we see in the universe? Absolutely not. That's, you know, that's where computational irreducibility bites you big time. Will we be able to answer even you know, the obvious questions like, is faster than light travel possible? Not necessarily. You know, we may be stuck with the thing that says, you know, does there exist a configuration of masses and other aspects of the universe such that you can align things so that you can get faster than light travel? May not know. It may be an undecidable thing. Um, 
and uh, the um, you know I think that that's a, a likely thing that we'll know down to the bottom of physics, um, but we won't be able to know the consequences of that, even even many of the most obvious consequences. And I think um, uh, the um, um, I think that that um, so you know in some sense reductionism will have won completely if we get to the bottom of physics, but it will have lost completely in the sense that we can't actually you know systematically build up these different levels. I mean you know one of the questions that's sort of interesting that I was thinking about recently was will there be an end to science? That is, will there come a time when we've discovered all the science that's worth knowing? Similarly, will there come a time when we've invented all the technology that's worth inventing? Right? So people said, you know, 100 years ago, people said all the patentable inventions have now been patented and so on. And people have said, you know, that the end of science is near. What I think one realizes is just like, and same with mathematics, you know, when will we have discovered all the mathematics that's worth discovering? Well, so it's very clear in mathematics there's an infinite sequence of theorems that you can discover that are true. Now the question is, okay, there's an infinite sequence of theorems, but they may be like Pythagoras is 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 equals 10. Um, and they may not be theorems we care about. So it's sort of a complicated interplay between what we care about and what's discoverable. And I think there's this sort of series of stepping stones or waypoints of what we care about that kind of develop in our culture. That is, there are things we might say today that we say are very, very significant. You know, we've proved, you know, Fermat's last theorem. Well, who cares about Fermat's last theorem, you might say, based on a different tradition of the history of mathematics. Um, and, you know, the really important thing is some weird fact about numbers that we nowadays say that's just a random fact. We don't care about it. Um, so I think this question about will there be an end, the, the, the question is will there always be interesting new science to discover? There certainly will always be new science to discover because sort of in the stamp collecting theory of computational irreducibility, there will always be new facts that require computation to derive them. The question is, will those facts be interesting? And that is more of a social question, I think, than it is a question about the fundamental science. And so insofar as sort of civilization continues to advance, so similarly there's sort of an unending sequence, presumably, of things that can be reached. Now, you know, it's a... It's a different story, the story of kind of, you know, will the AIs discover it for us and will we care about what the AIs discover? Those are all interesting questions because, you know, on this theory that, you know, there's a, you know, I can write down all kinds of random theorems out there, but you might say, well, okay, that's fine, it's true, I understand it's true, but I don't care. Um, and to care, you have to have this kind of framework. And our human framework only extends so far. I mean, for example, the whole NKS exploring the computational universe business, the reason, the, the overarching reason that that wasn't done a long time ago is that nobody cared, that people didn't see the, the chain of, of, of thinking that made that important to care about. Um, and so similarly, sort of one of the things that could happen, you know, the AIs can ride off into the sunset and discover amazingly interesting science, at least to them. But we may not care because we have no connection to that uh, uh, to that to that set of things. So I think that's um, uh, that's my view of, of kind of the um, uh, uh, sort of the, the, both the the sort of amazing achievements of reductionism and the kind of uh, impotence of reductionism. As in, you've got down to the bottom of physics, you found the simplest elements, but yet it is a sort of an, a, an infinite task to go up to to what what's actually true, and beyond that to you know, you can go an infinite distance in finding things out, but the question of whether you care 
is a complicated and more essentially social question. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about social sciences, and then we also um, we talked a little bit about the mapping of um, neural neural nets and um, human human neurons and computers, and also um, a little bit about von Neumann and stuff. Um, I was wondering about I'm glad um, you had done done a little blurb on the cover of the Fractalist, and I had read it, and um, um, Mandelbrot actually talked a little bit favorably. I was surprised about um, Norbert Wiener and, and cybernetics. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about. Norbert Wiener's effect on today, like optimizing of search engines and advertising and... Okay, so you're asking about Norbert Wiener and Benoit Mandelbrot. Well, Norbert Wiener, I don't know whether he died before I was born, but I certainly didn't know him. He was kind of the, the patron saint of MIT in some ways. Um, and I certainly knew people who knew him, but I did not know him. Benoit Mandelbrot I certainly did know for many, many years. Um, Norbert Wiener, you know, he wrote this book on cybernetics. Cybernetics was kind of all the rage in the 1950s. Um, cybernetics was a field where it wasn't completely clear what the heck it was. I mean, it turned into cybernetics, br what branched off from cybernetics was something that really worked, which was control theory, theory of automated con automatic control, which was a, a field that got developed to some extent in the US, a lot in places like Sweden, a lot in Soviet Union. Um, these were things that it was a, you know, this tradition of control theory was, was developed very well, but the more general sort of control and communication in, in, in uh, humans and, and machines and so on. That, as a, as a general tradition, that really didn't develop very well. Um, and it, it pretty much, you know, I, I've been involved with various cybernetics history initiatives, and it, it's hard to trace what, you know, it, it, it didn't really, it really kind of died out. The cyberneticians and so on died out. They spun out this very practical thing of control theory. Um, I think that the interaction between, I mean, uh, um, so Benoit Mandelbrot had essentially no interaction with that tradition, to my knowledge. Um, what happened, so Benoit Mandelbrot was a, a kind of a French mathematical tradition kind of guy, um, originally from Poland. Um, his uncle was a well-known, fairly well-known, pure mathematician. Um, he, um, uh, he somehow got involved in applied mathematics and in aerodynamics and things like this. And then somehow he got involved in, um, uh, in the statistics of languages, in particular this thing called Zipf's law, which is the law that says that the nth most common word in a language has frequency roughly 1 over n, which is roughly true. And there was a chap who had this whole theory about that. That's really, you know, Zipf's law is an example of a power law. Um, and anyway, Benoit Mandelbrot got involved in that. He got, um, he got wound up at IBM as a result of a, an ill-fated, very early language translation project in the 1950s. Um, and he spent many years at IBM studying uh, communications systems and all sorts of kind of statistics of things. Um, and, and eventually in the 1970s, he, um, uh, he wrote a book. And his book was originally published um, in French, but his book had an American publisher, W.H. Freeman Publishing Company. And somebody there, they, they, they liked to publish these very visual books. Somebody said, you've got to make pictures of all this stuff. And, um, so he got a programmer, his name was uh, Dick Voss, to use a bunch of IBM stuff to make pictures. And before that time, Benoit had written all these books, all these papers about things, and they, well, they, you know, they had some curves in them, but they didn't have any interesting pictures. But then when he got to write this book, he said, OK, we better make pictures of all this stuff. And so Dick Voss programmed up all these things 
that became the, the fractals that we know and love, so to speak. It's really a strange story of how you know, what might have, you know, a pure element of you know, effort of exposition ended up with sort of the main event, so to speak. I mean, Benoit, as a person, I've, I've, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that, that um, well, let's see, he, he um, to quote Benoit, when this was probably 1982, maybe, I was um, um, considerably younger than him. Uh, I was probably, in my, I was in my early 20s, and Benoit was, was um, uh, very uh, uh, frustratedly saying about me, how can so many people take someone so young so seriously? So, which was quite, I, I collect these kind of compliments. Um, it's, it's um, um, but anyway, so then, uh, I mean, I, I, I had many bizarre experiences with Benoit. He was a, he was a person, it was, a, it was kind of a sad story really, because I remember, you know, he really wanted to win the Nobel Prize for something. First it was physics, then it was economics, then whatever. It's like, Benoit, why do you care? You know, I, I said, the most interesting fields are the fields for which nobody has yet invented a prize. Um, and, you know, fractals falls into one such, such an area, you know. It's nobody cares. <laughs> nobody will ever, you know, will ever notice. But but he was very concerned with those kinds of things, and I think he was also very concerned because he thought uh, about NKS. He sort of saw this whole sort of uh, simple rules do complicated things idea as being kind of a superset of the fractals idea, which in some ways it is. Um, and he was very concerned about about um, uh, uh, kind of the the. the and we had many conversations about kind of the fate of fractals and the long view of history. And I kept on telling him, fractals are what they are. They're an interesting intermediate thing between periodicity and sort of randomness. And they're going to be interesting, and they're going to go on being interesting. And nothing that shows what happens with more sophisticated computation is going to crush fractals. And don't worry about it. Um, but that wasn't how it played out. Um, and I had a, I've had a very, very hard time when Benoit died. I was, I was going to write an obituary. and I. I I looked at a bunch of the correspondence that I'd had with him, and I started writing something. And my, my fine, ever uh, sensible staff said, "You cannot write this obituary. It has, uh, I mean, the, the quotes from things he'd written to me were so outrageous, um, but interesting, but outrageous. I mean, it's kind of like like this was not so. When when his, um, I had talked to him before he died. Actually, a lot of stuff about history. He'd been very resistant to telling me a bunch of the history that I later figured out. But he'd written. He kept on saying, you know, just read my autobiography, just read my autobiography. So, so his autobiography came out after he died. And so I, I wrote a review of his autobiography, actually, where, where I was able to, to um, uh, which gave me a framework for talking about some of the things and, and avoided the actual verbatim quotes from, from some of the more outrageous um, uh, kind of um, things that, that, that he'd sent me. But, but that's, you know, I, I view his work as being but I said, it's a, it's a very interesting intermediate s stage between periodicity, which has long been understood, and the sort of computational randomness, which, which we've now come to understand. And it's, it's, um, it's something for which there are applications and will continue to be applications. And uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. There have been these various other efforts to find sort of these intermediate states, like integrable systems and solitons and so on, which probably many of you have never heard of were kind of a big thing for a number of years, a sort of a, an intermediate stage between 
uh, kind of things that equations that you could solve exactly and things where you couldn't do those solutions. And solitons have not found too much application. I mean, they're relevant for understanding tsunamis. They're relevant for understanding propagation of, of signals in optical fibers and things like that. But they haven't, they haven't really turned into a big thing. And you had um, talked about Ada Lovelace, and you are talking about the paper she had wrote. And I know that she had described the, um, the, what they call the first computer program about Bernoulli numbers. And I don't know if you know about the culture of Bernoulli numbers. You talked about how um, Napoleon had, had these tables. And why were the Bernoulli numbers so important? And um, I heard it might be related to zeros and the zeta function and other things, too. So there's a lot of properties. Yeah, so, so you're asking about Bernoulli numbers. And you're noticing that um, Ada Lovelace used Bernoulli numbers as her example of um, uh, the um, uh, the operation of the analytical engine. Well, Bernoulli numbers had quite a significance in the in um, uh, before Bernoulli numbers, people had worked out uh, various properties of powers of polynomials and things, um, and by hand, people had done these incredibly elaborate calculations that had taken months to years and so on. And Bernoulli was very proud when he came up with Bernoulli numbers because he absolutely crushed that those computations. Um, and so then there was sort of a series of, of efforts. to So Bernoulli numbers were kind of a known thing as being kind of a way of uh, sort of doing, a, a sort of uh, compactly computing things. Um, actually, I was amused a number of years ago. We, we computed the 10 millionth Bernoulli number as an early Mathematica exercise. And so it was kind of a, a, a bringing this tradition of Bernoulli numbers as a way of um, thinking about things. I think that the... Um, uh, you know, what happens in mathematics, things like the Riemann zeta function end up being, um, you know, it's an important thing, but it's particularly important because it's right on the edge of what is doable. I mean, mathematics, there's things in mathematics that are pretty easy. There's things on mathemati in mathematics that are undecidable and, and are probably independent of the axioms. And there are things that we can get to, but it just takes a lot of effort. And particularly things where people are picked away for a long time, like Fermat's last theorem or the Riemann hypothesis, um, are, are places where you know a lot of mathematical effort gets put because there's so much you know people are picked away at them. Now sometimes the picking away at them ends up leading to sort of important general principles. An area like the four-color theorem was picked away at for a long time, and the, and the final proof of it didn't seem to lead to particularly doesn't, hasn't to date led to a sort of particular flowering of methodologies. Fermat's last theorem has done much better in that regard. Um, I think, um, you know, the question about the Riemann hypothesis and things like that is, are they in fact, you know, are they independent of, uh, it's a complicated question because of the nature of the type of question that it is, whether if it is independent of the axioms, does that imply it's true and things like this. It's a, it's a question of the sort of formal definitions of truth and so on. But, but these questions like, you know, P versus MP, Riemann hypothesis, things like this, can they actually be established from the, uh, the axioms that we believe in mathematics? It's not obvious that they, that they can. Um, and it may be that they're just things which, yes, you can state them in mathematical terms, um, but you can't necessarily uh, establish them from these axioms. And, and, you know, some of these things like P versus NP, you know, I've, I've looked at sort of the concrete version of that in terms of actually looking at Turing machines. And it, it becomes very clear that that question is not nearly as well formulated as you might think. You know, it's a, it's a complicated thing. You say, there's a Turing machine. Okay, it wiggles, you know, the, the, the time that it takes to do this, it wiggles around as you look at different Turing machines and different sizes of problems and so on. And it's a, a little bit like the Riemann hypothesis. So why is the Riemann hypothesis hard? I finally understood that about 30 years ago because I plotted the Riemann zeta function on the complex line, uh, on, the, on the critical line. And you see that it wiggles all over the place. 
And you know, the Riemann hypothesis is equivalent to the fact that there are no maxima of the Riemann zeta function that are below the axis. But the thing's just wiggling like crazy, and it's wiggling in this seemingly random way. And that's kind of the moment at which you realize, yeah, it's kind of clear this might be hard to prove um, because it's wiggling all over the place. And, and, and um, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to see these things as a matter of experimental mathematics. I mean, that one of the things that's strange about mathematics is that it remains such a theoretical field where everything is sort of established by proof in the sort of Euclid-type tradition, even though most mathematicians from Gauss onwards have figured things out experimentally. I mean, Gauss figured out the prime number theorem at first by just looking at, you know, tables of primes and so on. And uh, famously, I mean, you know, one of the, like Ramanujan, for example, who came up with all kinds of, uh, uh, interesting mathematical results, like e to the pi squared of 163 is roughly an integer, which he found just by calculating it. And then the big thing that he figured out was, and that fact gives us these really good approximations to pi, and which are still used today, and also gives us sort of the gives us a way into these very elaborate, this sort of theories of higher functions and so on. But but ultimately he was an experimental mathematician, and. Um, you know, it's a funny thing that relates to, I suppose, sort of one's views of reductionism or not. You know, to what extent does just going out into the mathematical universe and finding what's true, to what extent is that a valid form of mathematics, and to what extent do you have to build things up step by step in a sort of guaranteed reductionist kind of, kind of way? All right, one or two more things, and then we should wrap up. Yes, please. What's my view about Max Tegmark's mathematical universe hypothesis? I, I have known Max for a long time. I, so far as I can tell, this is a completely muddled idea. And I have told this to Max a bunch of times. Um, so I think it's, it's um, uh, let's see if I can even, even reconstruct what he claims that might, might be the case. I mean, it, it's in, in the, uh, well, if you give me a version of it, I'll tell you what I think about it, what, what, what you think the statement of it is. I mean, basically, it's you know, this kind of question of where does our universe lie in the universe of all possible universes is something that when you think about it in computational terms, it's a pretty well-defined question. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I have, I, have nothing, I have nothing very good to say. I, I, I'm, I'm confused, and, I, and Max is also very confused, I think, about this. So. Um, but I think this question of where does our universe lie in the universe of all possible universes, that's an interesting question. And you know, if we find the fundamental theory of physics and we can hold it in our hand, and it's one particular universe of all possible universes, then we get to ask why that universe and not another one. And my own guess is, my best guess right now, is that as an observer in the universe, it will turn out that a, an infinity of possible universes are actually equivalent if you are an observer in those universes. Looked at from outside, they may look completely different. They may operate in different ways, but if you are an observer in those universes, they will be identically equivalent. That's my current guess. I mean, but it's been an interesting thing historically. I mean, when Newton was looking at um, you know, the orbits of planets and so on, he was saying, well, you know, I can understand once the planets are set in their orbits, I can understand, I can compute what will happen, but to know how these planets were first set in their orbits is beyond what my science can deal with. And in fact, we now know, you know, there was probably some, you know, some whole accretion disk around the sun when it was forming, and now we kind of know something about how planets were formed. But in Newton's time, he couldn't imagine 
where the planets would come from, so to speak. It was just like, here are the planets, now I can figure out what they do. Similarly, Darwin, for example, you know, he would talk about how uh, you know, once life has started, then I can understand how life might continue to evolve. But knowing how the first piece of life came to be was something that he couldn't sort of imagine from his, from his theory at that time. Actually, Darwin makes an interesting, Darwin was an interesting example of sort of um, uh, understanding of complexity and so on. The last uh, sentences, last sentence of Origin of Species is interesting. It basically says um, that, uh, you know, it's talking about the fact that species uh, are being and will continue to, uh, uh, you know, uh, evolve and will continue to evolve and so on. But he says, and much as the Earth goes around the sun according to the fixed law of gravity, so species ever more complex and elaborate and so on are being and will continue to be evolved. And so what he's saying there is effectively, like a law of physics, like the law of gravity, so there was a law that says that natural selection will lead to increasing complexity, which is probably not true. But it was an interesting claim on Darwin's part and an interesting kind of thought pattern of the fact that there might be such a, a, such a principle that from natural selection you would lead to increasing complexity that had the same character, in a sense, as a mathematical or physical law like law of gravity. Um, but I think, you know, it's a, this question about, you know, Copernicus, you know, one of the big contributions at a sort of uh, philosophical level was the idea, sorry, but we're not the center of the universe type thing. Um, and that was, you know, reiterated as more biology got understood and sorry, there's nothing special about the way biology is set up. And it's like, we're just on some random corner of the space of all possible things. And, but if we find the fundamental theory of physics and it's a simple universe, it's like, what do we think about that? Because that's kind of not very Copernican. If, if our universe was typical, it should be a very, very, very complicated universe. And a universe so complicated that no laws of science would be meaningfully applicable. And so how come we live in a simple universe, so to speak? That seems very non-Copernican. And I think right now, I don't really see the way out of that, that issue. Um, and uh, you know, except for this possibility that maybe a, there's an infinite, infinity of possible universes which are actually equivalent as far as the observers in those universes are concerned. I mean, there are, there are other possible theories, like for example, when we start enumerating universes, our mechanism of enumeration is determined by our existence in this universe. And therefore, what we will always choose to enumerate things in such a way that our particular universe will come early in the enumeration. I don't think that's probably a correct interpretation, but I think the, um, the thing that, um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, for me, I feel sort of as helpless as, you know, the Newton and Darwin situations of, okay, we can see something about how this universe might be constructed, but if we can actually hold the universe in our hand, knowing why it's this one and not another, I, you know, it's a, it's a thing that appears to me right now to be sort of a metaphysical type question, um, not amenable to, to sort of scientific investigation, but I'm sure that will not ultimately be the case. Um, I think it's a, uh, you know, but this question of whether, whether, whether we're in the only possible universe, um, I think one of the things that um, I'm, I'm reminded of um, uh, a good friend of mine who's a uh, uh, computation, but practical computing type person who's like, uh, you know, when you investigate all these universes and you reject them, just because they don't happen to be our universe, don't throw them out. They might be useful for something kind of thing. It's a, it's a you know, it's not clear what, you know, as we look at the universal possible universes, 
um, well, there's a, actually one thing to mention about that is, you know, people talk about this anthropic hypothesis that our universe is, um, you know, that we are in this carefully tuned universe that's set up to be the only possible universe that can support intelligent life and so on. This is a very muddled idea because these people fundamentally do not understand the whole notion of universal computation and, and all the stuff we understand from principle of computational equivalence. I mean, it's basically along the lines of, in order to have intelligent life, you need liquid water, which just cannot be, you know, the notion that intelligence and something like intelligence is dependent on liquid water is, in my opinion, absurd. Um, and, you know, that is, but that's the kind of thing that, that, and so then people say, well, you know, you have to have a star of a certain size. Now, some of that is kind of blown up because, you know, exoplanets have been found everywhere. So that, that you know, right there is kind of the, the first, um, uh, first thing. I mean, the, you know, the big mystery, I suppose, from that and sort of a big long-time mystery of science is the, you know, where are the extraterrestrials type thing. And I think that tends to be a, um, uh, it's kind of funny, from, from my point of view, for many years, that was kind of a Rorschach test for how one thought about the world. You know, where did the extraterrestrials go? Well, maybe they blew themselves up because they discovered, you know, uh, nuclear weapons, and then it was all over from from that time. Or maybe they, um, uh, maybe they just, um, uh, you know, maybe they're observing us, but we're in kind of a, a, a you know, a, a savages reservation or something. Um, or maybe, you know, maybe there's a, so you know, different people have different theories. Other people have the theory they just can't be bothered. You know, it's like why bother? It's you know just hang out and be happy type thing. Um, and uh, so I, I, I mean, I tend to think my own view of this is that the, the fundamental thing to understand is that our definition of intelligence is pretty, it's, it's, you know, we understand what human-like intelligence is, but the abstract notion of intelligence, and this is what kind of principle of computational equivalence implies, is abstract intelligence is everywhere. It's, you know, it's, you know, the, the, the weather has a mind of its own. You know, the pulsar magnetosphere is producing signals that are as complex as anything we can produce with our brains and civilization and whatever else. And so this question of, well, where's the extraterrestrial intelligence? The answer is, it's everywhere. You say, well, what about, you know, why isn't there this elaborate civilization that's developed like ours? Well, in a sense, it has. Any place you look in the universe, there's an elaborate course of evolution that's occurred that's led you to where the, you know, where the pulsar is right now, so to speak. And it is sort of a conceit that our particular, you know, path of evolution is somehow much more significant than all these other ones. And I think it's a, you know, it's the one we care the most about. But to say that it is, you know, to characterize it as sort of fundamentally more complex than other things, I think is a, is a tricky business. And I think, you know, this is revealed as one, as one tries to imagine you know, these things where you say, okay, what do we send? You know, to communicate to the extraterrestrials, what do we send? Well, we can send these things that are incredibly human-like, and that's fine, but that's not going to be the abstract sort of version of, of, uh, of how, we, how we make that connection. And so I think that's a, um, but that, you know, that remains one of the more important sort of unanswered questions of science is, um, okay, you know, are there, what is the, in the space of all possible intelligences, it's kind of like the space of all possible universes, in the space of all possible intelligences, how close are the nearest ones to us, right? So, I mean, the weather doesn't seem to be very close to us. Its structure of, you know, motivation, its characteristics, its, its history, its literature, and so on, are not close to ours. But the question is, in the, in the space of all possible intelligences in the universe, where are, you know, where are the ones that are, which, which, what ones are closest to us, and what are they like? And 
Are they, uh, you know, and, and, you know, is there a ranking of different ones? I suspect not. Um, and um, uh, anyway, I mean, I think that's, um, uh, but these, you know, I think a lot of these questions, you know, boil down to there's a big space of possibilities and which ones are considered interesting is a matter of one's own view. That is, you can say there's all these intelligences out there, but which ones we actually care about are dependent on which on, on our own view of ourselves. You know, we can't have a discussion with a cloud, for example. We can't have, and so we don't consider it interesting. But um, we can, uh, you know, so it, it, but it can nevertheless have an inner, you know, characteristic that is that is just as elaborate as ours. Anyway, it's uh, all right. Yeah, please. Perhaps intelligence is everywhere, but where is consciousness? The physical limit of a system for consciousness. What do you think about? Well, so this question about consciousness. This is this is always a question that comes up, and and I think consciousness is as slippery or slipperier a concept than any of these other ones. That is, we know what we think it is because we think we have it. What, what it is abstractly, we have no idea. That is, you know, you start from life. What is life abstractly? You know, life on Earth, it's all descended from a common ancestor, presumably. You know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, the first uh, Mars landers, okay? First Mars landers dug up soil samples, and they wanted to find out whether there was life in the soil samples. So they fed them sugar and tried to see whether they produced carbon dioxide. And that was the most general kind of approach to determining whether the thing was alive, which is kind of a, a very, you know, very terrestrial-centric view of, of life. And I think similarly, you know, when we ask about something like consciousness, we think we have it. Do our computers have it? Hard to say. Do our, you know, at what point, you know, I've been somewhat involved in the whole AI ethics business, and one of the more, more bizarre parts of that whole business, which has its many bizarre parts, is at what point do we start to worry about the ethics for our computers? That is to say, you can't switch that computer off. It's, you know, a, you know, th this is the question of human exceptionalism, so to speak. That is, we say, you know, we're the humans, we're the best, we're in charge. That's one point of view. The, you know, the current trend of history is to say there is no exceptionalism or there should be no exceptionalism. So, but we are, in a sense, the question of whether human exceptionalism is alive and well in the world of AIs and are we allowed to switch the AIs off is an interesting question. But that, that's where we have to define. You know, at some moment, somebody will have to say, is that AI conscious? Are we allowed to switch it off? And um, you know, I think there will be a, uh, uh, you know, that, that will be an interesting issue. And I think, um, um, anyway, one last thing, yeah. I was just wondering if you, uh, if you have any thoughts on the uh, the ideas presented by Nick Bostrom about simulations and you know whether we are in a simulation and whether or not it relates to his arguments about that. Yeah, right. So the question is about the simulation, simulation hypothesis. Are we living in a simulation? This question is a muddle. Okay? Let's unpack it. So the question is, so what would it mean if we were living in a simulation? It would mean that somehow down at the lowest levels of the universe, there is a, you know, a system that has been built that has where, uh, where that system is operating according to certain rules that lead to the universe as we see it. But that is what's happening. Because if there are fundamental laws for physics, 
then there is ultimately some program effectively that's running down there at the lowest levels that is leading to everything we now know. Now, we don't think of that as a simulation because it's just the nature of reality. What would make it a simulation is if somehow there was some intention down at the level of that program to create the universe as we see it. In other words, if there was some civilization, so to speak, living down at the Planck scale that was, you know, like in you know, the Hunger Games movie or something, was creating the world, so to speak, right? And where, where there was, you know, some, some sort of uh, Planck-like Planck god figure, so to speak, who was just moving a slider to determine, you know, what would happen in the world kind of thing, right? Now, we believe that if it's a simulation, it is a self-consistent, it's just running a program. But somebody might have said, well, let's move the slider to, to change what the program is. But now the question is, well, what would that look like? What would that be like? That would be like some civilization exists down at the Planck scale that is intelligent and has intentions and so on. But actually, in this whole principle of computational equivalence, you know, the uh, sort of computation and intelligence are everywhere. That is exactly what we believe is the case. That is, there's no difference between the sort of the intelligence and intention that we see at our scale and the intelligence and intention that exists in physics at this lowest scale. So it, it really is a, it's a muddled concept to say there's some, you know, somebody is, is pulling the strings, you know, the puppeteer is pulling the strings down at the Planck scale because, yes, there is a, there is a puppeteer pulling the strings. It's the laws of physics. But the law, and the laws, and, you know, is there a puppeteer intending to pull the strings? Well, as much intention is going on there as goes on, in a sense, anywhere insofar as everything is determined by particular rules. That was a, that was a slightly, I'm getting better at this. I'm, I'm, you know, people have asked me this question many times and doing the real-time philosophy of unpacking the simulation argument. I mean, the thing that that's, was most, um, uh, the thing that people have said to me is in recent times as they said, you know, the most surprising thing about Silicon Valley today is that a decent number of people in Silicon Valley believe that we're living in a simulation. <laughs> and, that, uh, um, and that's kind of a, I don't know what that's a comment about. But um, anyway, I think um, that's, the, that's the, the modern religion of Silicon Valley is we're living in a simulation. God is dead, but somehow there's beings down at the Planck scale that are setting up the simulation for us. Um, and that, I suppose, is the, uh, uh, it is funny, again, like the, you know, like the ether is back and so on, you know, God is dead, but we're living in a simulation. <laughs> it's kind of a, uh, a, nice, um, a nice way that, um, that things come around. Um, anyway, all right, we should, we should probably wrap up here. Well, that was fun. You've been listening to the final installment of our series on the history of science with Stephen Wolfram. For more information on Stephen's blog posts, books, live coding streams, and podcasts, visit stephenwolfram.com.